in a sense, every lipoprotein that's in your body is either primarily in the job of delivering energy or it's in what I'd call a support role. So think of energy delivery as, you know, the food trucks. Think of um, support role as the emergency vehicles. You're listening to The Tactical Kitchen. I'm Melody Barron, certified chef and nutritional therapy practitioner. And I'm Steve Barron, 21-year special operations veteran and certified personal trainer. Together, we are here to share our experience on the ketogenic lifestyle. Don't forget our disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors, and we don't play them on the internet. Now, let's get ready to chew the fat. Mmm, bacon. Hey friends, welcome back to the Tactical Kitchen Show, and you're listening to episode 12 today. Today, we're going to be talking to Dave Feldman, who is a software engineer and an entrepreneur, but don't let that fool you. He's going to redefine cholesterol for you. If you have been wondering what's going on with my cholesterol on this ketogenic diet, this is the podcast for you to listen to today. We are not going to just hang around here and talk about Dave. We want Dave to do the talking to you guys right now. So let's go ahead and get on with this episode because it's a great one. All right. Welcome back to the Tactical Kitchen, and today we have Dave Feldman of Cholesterol Code. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Well, we're really excited to have you on. We've we've read your work and been following it, and you do some really great things when it comes to cholesterol. So we thought it was a really good opportunity to have you on so we can explain to everybody uh, some information about cholesterol. You know, the first time I heard you uh, was actually on a plane. I downloaded a podcast and I heard you talk about your experiment where you tested your cholesterol every day. And I don't recall how many days in a row you did this, but it was an experiment you did with your sister, if I remember correctly. That's correct. And it totally blew my mind because this was the first time that I had heard someone talk about cholesterol and how it changes basically on the fly. So do you mind maybe sharing a little bit about that first experiment? Uh, If it was your first. (laughs) It it definitely was not my first. (laughs) But you know what? It might be a good leaping off point, particularly for listeners who've already heard my spiel before. Um, So we'll kind of jump forward a little bit in time. I'd already been keto. I'd already done some experiments. And uh, imagine you're my sister, And I call you and I'm like, you know, this research is going really well, but what I really need is somebody who has a regular amount of uh, LDL cholesterol that's much less than mine. Because since since I went keto, I found out I was a hyper-responder. And hyper-responders in keto are those who see their cholesterol jump up substantially after they go on the diet. And hers did not, even though mine did, even though I'm her only brother. Uh, she's my only sister, even though we're genetically related, uh, she only saw a small bump in her cholesterol. I saw a very large bump, but that made her a great candidate. If I could somehow talk her into this insane experiment that I had. So I said, would you be willing to, for 13 days, eat exactly the same thing I do at exactly the same time? And for what it's worth, I'll actually conform to what your diet is, not the other way around. So whatever you're eating, I'll eat gram per gram. 
but there's one other catch. <laughs> I'm going to need you to take seven blood draws. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my sister is so amazing. She's so wonderful. She uh, jumped on board. In fact, um, for the first uh, part of the experiment, she did have to operate out of Denver, which is where she's located, while I was operating here out of Las Vegas. But for the um, for the bulk, and particularly of the blood draws, she flew here, and I made our food simultaneously, constantly. In fact, I have a lot of pictures that are on my blog that shows, you know, I had um, our eggs side by side. I had our uh, avocado side by side. In fact, it's funny, the scrambled eggs... I even made sure to fry in separate pans so I could be sure that they didn't commingle and lose the gram weight of either side. Um, <clears throat> now, so what happens then when two people, granted genetically related, but two people who have different lipid profiles eat the same exact diet and get the blood draws at exactly the same time, you find that, as we found, our cholesterol went up and down in synchronicity. <laughs> like it was wow. crazy. Now, here's the catch. Here's the catch. It's what we would call a, change, a difference in magnitude. So while mine was way up here, up high, hers was down here in the middle. And you can find this blog post uh, on cholesterolcode.com. I think it's called, just do a search for identical diet. And so if you then made a relative comparison, which is to say the axis on one side was mine and the axis on her side, on the other side was hers, you would actually see that they just perfect, almost like a cookie cutter, just perfectly matched each other right over top of each other, the LDL. But what was also exciting was that our HDL and our triglycerides were on top of each other, also going up and down with the diet, against the diet plan. And that was not in relative comparison. That was an absolute comparison. Totally different bodies, totally different bloodstreams, totally different lipid profiles. And that was a major turning point for me. I mean, at the point where I saw this inversion pattern that I speak of a lot, not just in myself, but in my sister as well, I started really thinking, you know, I believe this probably exists for most people. I really do. So when you talk about the inversion pattern, can you maybe like give our listeners a little clue about what that is in case they're unfamiliar with what you're talking about? Absolutely. So this was kind of the first phase of my experimenting. I remained keto the entire time. That's kind of an important part because much of, much of my data, and for that matter, a lot of the data brought by my followers are from people who are already on a ketogenic diet. So I don't know a lot as to how much this applies to people on a carb-centric diet. So let me first qualify that. But while on a ketogenic diet, I found that the more fat I ate, the lower my LDL cholesterol went. And conversely, the less fat I ate, the higher my LDL cholesterol went. And I found this to be very surprising, of course, because this goes against just about everything I had read up to that point, that your cholesterol tracks with your dietary fat and especially your saturated fat. Now, here's where I want to put in just a little qualifier. Technically, I do believe it's true that if you're on a fat-centric diet, particularly if you're leaner and more athletic, which we'll get into in a little bit, it is more likely your 
baseline, your starting point, if you will, of cholesterol is going to be higher. And therefore, on top of that, if you have high amounts of dietary fat in just the last three days, that that will now create this inverting pattern that the more you eat, the lower it goes against that baseline, right? Yeah. So that's the inversion pattern in a sense, is that if you were to right now, if you guys just decided for the next three days, you were going to fast, not eat any food at all, or you were going to eat a very low calorie ketogenic diet, let's say 500 calories a day, right? I predict that your cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol would skyrocket. It would go way up because inverse to the amount of food you're eating and especially dietary fat, it would go up. But then all of a sudden you switch gears, you start eating tons of fat for three days, then it would plummet. Like I've demonstrated several times over with my research. So that's the inversion pattern. Now let's talk just for a second about the baseline. Why is it that many people see a hyper response like I had? And I have to date the most compelling data for me to suggest that it's mainly based on how metabolically flexible you are, and in particular, how lean you are, how low in total adipose mass you are, how, how low your body fat is, along with how athletic you are. And the reason for this, and I'm going to get a little bit technical for a second, is that I'm ultimately manipulating my LDL cholesterol by, by manipulating how my body traffics fat in the bloodstream for energy to be used by my tissues. And while that may sound a bit complex, it's actually relatively simple when you think about it in terms of gas tanks. So if you have a big body fat gas tank, then it makes a lot of sense that your body can make use of, say, the fat that's in my forearm to be used by the muscle tissue that's in my forearm without having to make a whole route over to my liver to ultimately be packaged into a VLDL particle to then bring it back around. Does that make sense mm -hmm. so far? Oh yeah, I love where this is going. So another gas tank that I'm sure you guys are familiar with is a shorter term gas tank, and that's your glycogen stores. And past the first phase with my inversion pattern, my second phase had to do with playing with the glycogen stores. And in order to do that, unfortunately, I had to leave keto several times to do carb swap experiments, carb addition experiments, and so forth. And by the way, these were not pleasant. I haven't really enjoyed it. Uh, I still don't. All versions of where I have to take on carbs have not been, let's just say my wife is a wonderful woman because she gets to put up with a lot of my whining 24-7 and it's like 100 times worse than what I say on Twitter, not my blog. But... <laughs> It's, it's really the only way for me to fill up my glycogen stores while on a ketogenic diet, because guess what? Your glycogen stores do not remain topped off if you're really militantly keto. It, or for that matter, it shouldn't be. If you have topped off glycogen stores, there may be more to the story. Um, so that's, that's the other tank. And when that tank is past a certain threshold, my research suggests your LDL cholesterol goes lower. So there are some people, and I don't have a protocol for this, but there are some people who have done versions of my carb swap experiment that likewise could lower their LDL cholesterol 
once they had enough carbs. But I really want to emphasize carbs, carbs in place of fat. When people have a ketogenic diet and they add carbs, there's almost no version that doesn't turn out positively. <laughs> it usually yeah. brings... It usually brings up cholesterol and it usually brings up triglycerides, usually. Uh, so a lot of people have misinterpreted my, my um, experiments and it brought back, Dave, I tried your carb loading uh, thing, which I did for three days on top of my ketogenic diet and my cholesterol shot through the roof. And I'm like, yes, that's because your tanks are now way overfilled. And now you've, you know, you've created more unnecessary fat trafficking in the body. Uh, so when you think about it in terms of those two tanks, and then you think about it in terms of need, then it all makes sense. Because if you're more athletic, guess what? You, you have a higher need for your body for energy. And your body is smart about making that, that fuel bioavailable. It's good about it. And that's why at the one end of the spectrum of those people who I study and I myself have been in and out of this role a few times is what I like to call lean mass hyperresponders. And lean mass hyperresponders tend to have LDL cholesterol of 200 or higher, but they also tend to have uh, HDL of 80 or higher, and they have super low triglycerides of 70 or lower. I often see them in like the 30s or 40s for super athletes. And that actually makes a lot of mechanistic sense because what that means is, is the lower triglycerides, that's literally the energy, the fuel in your body from fat that's being trafficked around. That's lower because it's getting used. Because if you're pulling out the blood that's in your body that's trafficking this fat, guess what? There's less of it there because it's getting quickly absorbed and used by your tissues. Now, that's, that's really interesting because my... Uh, cholesterol is pretty high. And my LDL was 330, I think, the last time I tested it. So that's, you know, for a normal doctor, that's really high. And, and our, doc our, our doctor and made you, quite a face. <laughs> and, and can I ask what's your HDL and triglycerides? Uh, HDL was in the 70s. And my triglycerides they were in the sixties, I want to say between yep. 50 and 60. Sometimes they're in the forties. And the last time I had it tested, I haven't, been, I had not been very physically active prior to getting it tested, which explains why my triglycerides, they went up a little bit where I was used to being in the forties. That's exactly right. Uh, I have an analogy that I think makes this really easy for a lot of people. Imagine the three of us are sitting out on a lot and we're watching um, a distributor depot that's uh, supplying um, grocery stores all around the country, right? We'll say it's to a, uh, a King Supers, right? And we're sitting out on the lot, and I go, oh, my gosh, there's way too many trucks that are going out to supply those King Supers. I think it's like 100. And you guys are sitting there, and you're going, well, Dave, hold on, Dave, hold on. I keep seeing them going out with stuff. But I, see, I seem to also keep seeing them coming back without stuff. I think maybe it needs to have a hundred trucks. And I'd be like, well, I, I still think that's way too many. Like, I don't know that I can come to that same conclusion. Well, we go back next year and there's 200 trucks. And I go, guys, this is ridiculous. There's 200 trucks here. 
And you go, oh, hold on, hold on. And you're watching them coming back and they're empty. And you're going, they probably expanded. They probably have a greater need for the inventory. And that's why when they go out, they're coming back empty, right? Well, guess what? LDL particles in your blood right now, most of them started out as VLDL particles. And the primary job of a VLDL particle is to drop off triglycerides. That's it, right? So what you're seeing are empty boats that have already done their first job, which is to drop off the triglycerides. Therefore, how can I come to any conclusion other than, oh, because there is very low triglycerides, there's very high LDL, that level of LDL, both the particles and the cholesterol that stays standard inside it, are perfectly appropriate because that's what it took to provide those triglycerides to the tissues, right? So yes, I fully expect that if you worked out for a full week and then you went and got a blood test, your triglycerides would be super low. You know why? Because your body's using them. And guess what? I also find this as well with lean mass hyperresponders. They also tend to freak out because they, like me, they started out with a much lower fasting glucose, but slowly it precipitates up and their fasting glucose tends to be higher than their sedentary counterparts in the low-carb community. But that makes perfect sense because your body is getting better about sparing the glucose and using the fat. It needs the glucose for the explosive energy. You've got to have it, particularly if I'll bet you guys have it. If I already guess, if I already guess, I bet you guys have higher, because you do a lot of CrossFit, right? So you do a lot of explosive energy uh, exercises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'd be willing to bet that you guys probably have relatively a higher fasting glucose, probably in the 90s, um, than like somebody else who posts online, oh, mine's 75 again this morning, right? But they're more of like a YouTuber or a blogger or something along those lines. This all makes mechanistic sense, guys. This is an energy machine, and it's good at what it does. Yeah, my, uh, my fasting glucose last time it was tested was 99. And, of course, that, again, made, made my doctor, you know, tell me that you have, have uh, you know, he wanted to do a glucose tolerance test. And I said, hey, man, I don't eat carbs. So if you do a <laughs> glucose tolerance test on me, you're going to blow me out of the water. You're going to totally screw me up. But uh, yeah. he was very insistent. I just told him, hey, man, don't worry about it. I'm okay. I can live with these numbers. And I'm going to warn you that you would probably fail the glucose tolerance test because of your adaptive glucose sparing. So right now your body is intentionally not having a higher affinity for glucose except where needed, which is probably the explosive muscle tissue, right? Therefore, if all of a sudden you just brought in a bunch of glucose, and this is why it's a common hack long before I was talking about this. It's a common hack that if you know you're going to need to do a glucose tolerance test, that for uh, a few days, preferably like a week, you actually get back to a carb-centric diet in order to readapt your body to trying to take back down the glucose so that you can then pass the test. Uh, the fact that that hack exists already shows the monumental power of the body to adapt. And obviously, to the way that it's treating the glucose is for what its best purpose is, which is for the explosive energy, 
Man. Okay. So when you're talking about people who work out and then a lot of times um, people will go work out and then they'll be fasting and they'll have their blood draw and they'll get their blood work back. And they're just blown away by the fact that they have this high LDL or whatever. So that, that is very interesting for people to know because you get that one snapshot in time, this little snapshot of your blood work, and you're all of a sudden told, like he was, you need a statin, you need to come in and do a glucose test, you need all of these new medications now because clearly you're physically a wreck. But you feel the the irony is you feel the best you've ever felt in your life. Yes, I get this all the time from lean mass hyperresponders, especially. They they have this profile I'm telling you about. That's the same one you're talking about, where your LDL is off the charts. Your HDL is way high. Your triglycerides are way low. And you feel better than you ever did in your life. And so it's almost uh, this massive drag because you're looking at your own blood work and you're seeing all these inflammation markers at just the bottom. Like you're seeing just the picture of health. And then there's these like bright light, uh, way out of range LDL warning, you know, where and, and everybody is absolutely, it's absolutely understandable for everybody to feel very skeptical in hearing new information about this, because I, myself, I, I grew up my whole life watching Lipidor commercials, hearing over and over again about not just from my, not just from doctors, but also from family that were, you know, worried about their cholesterol and were taking this medication and that medication. It just seemed like established fact. It seemed like it was, Absolutely something that uh, anybody wanting to take a position against would have to have a very foundationally strong amount of evidence to overwhelm all of this existing avalanche of evidence that's already out there. That's what I thought when I started. And I'm, you know, it's, it's actually kind of apropos that we're talking on this day because this is the first day in which I did a blog post where somebody tried to challenge a... Um, a graphic that I've had out for three months that I call the low carb cholesterol challenge. And the low carb cholesterol challenge says, Hey, there seems to be a lot of people complaining about low carbers feeling comfortable with a high LDL, even if they have a high HDL and a low triglyceride. And this of course, especially goes with lean mass hyperresponders. Well, um, in this graphic, I said, send me your best study, your best study that's neither a drug study or a gene study, just has a regular population that shows people who have a high LDL, but also have a high HDL and low triglycerides have high cardiovascular rates. I've not gotten a single submission. I, got, <laughs> I, I finally got a submission last Friday and unfortunately didn't qualify, though I Hats off to the lipidologist who really wanted to prove me wrong. Um, but, uh, oh, wow. and I've got a blog post up on it. It's, it failed on two, uh, I think actually on three of the five points, but he genuinely wanted to, you know, uh, spar on this one. And I, again, I'd like to encourage as many people as possible if they can find it, throw it at me, but it's extremely revealing that this evidence doesn't exist that I've been able to find yet. And I've looked hard. I've, I've pinged some of the biggest LDL lowering experts and nobody has the study. They all, they all want to keep trying to point back to these drug 
and gene studies, and all of those use already uh, compromised populations and unfortunately suffer from a higher potential for selection bias. And the neat thing about grabbing just a, you know, a, a population, like if you, even like say the Framingham offspring study, and then just exclude those people on uh, heart medication and so forth, is guess what? It doesn't show that. It shows people with an LDL P, uh, an LDLC of uh, 130 or above, which are glycerides below 100, and HDL above 40 for men, above 50 for women, that they have the next best cardiovascular rate. It's, it's super cardioprotective, even though their LDLC is above 130. I wish they'd stratified to even higher levels so that we could at least see what it was for that. But I was I was amazed to find this out that this this kind of evidence has not only existed, but that it's not being pursued. That we're not trying harder to find out what's going on with the lipid system. So it just takes, yeah. unfortunately, people like myself and other people who you know who I also work with and who follow me and so forth to really just try to go out and get the evidence themselves. Well, I think that's a really good point because not not to get too far into the uh, big pharma conspiracy theories, but it does seem like a lot of that information is suppressed by certain uh, you know companies or people in certain circles because, like you've pointed out so far, is you can manipulate your cholesterol through diet however you want it to look. It's that simple. So there's no reason to take any pharmaceutical drugs drugs to try to bring it up or down. You can do it yourself. Um, my cholesterol is, and I, I guess I fall into this hyper responder because when we first started, the first time I, I had it tested, it was, it was 465. That was my cholesterol. So that, that freaks any doctor out. And then we did a carnivore experiment and we tested it after 30 days and it actually went down to 400. So many differences there. And, you know, like you said, Dave, about you see all of these great biomarkers, all these health markers that are improved as far as inflammation. And we've had our, you know, the the C-reactive protein checked and all those things are just awesome numbers. And they skip right past all of it and just say, oh, this LDL and your total cholesterol are so elevated, you are going to die. I mean, when his, when our doctor saw his cholesterol the first time, he didn't respond to him. He was like, nah, I'm not taking a statin. So they called me (laughs) to take a statin. He is a walking time bomb. And I was like, I don't, so I started talking to the nurse on the phone about it. And I was like, yeah, but if you, have you ever heard about ratios and total cholesterol ratios, HDL? They had no clue what I was talking about. (laughs) So it was so interesting. And that kind of brings us to something that I wanted you to get into on this podcast that I heard you talk about recently, and that's remnant cholesterol, which was something I'd never heard about until I heard it from you. Yes. Uh, so <clears throat> let's kind of go back to what I was talking about before with the VLDL. The VLDL is effectively a boat that your body makes that delivers these triglycerides to your tissues, right? Mm-hmm. The VLDL, after, after it drops off these triglycerides to your tissues, then remodels to an IDL, which is an intermediate lipoprotein. Okay. And it will either get absorbed by the liver or it'll go on its own. Now, a lot of studies will debate somewhat as to just what the ratio is, but 
kind of a commonly standard accepted one is that about 50% of them go to the liver and get absorbed. The other 50% go out to what I call patrol. So I call it patrol because in a sense, every lipoprotein that's in your body is either primarily in the job of delivering energy or it's in what I'd call a support role. So think of energy delivery as, you know, the food trucks. Think of um, support role as the emergency vehicles, right? Like the mm-hmm. cops and the fire. So you'd normally think of HDL, the good cholesterol. Well, that's contained in these HDL particles, high-density lipoproteins. They are exclusively the emergency vehicles. They're trying to help out in the bloodstream. And they do that typically by like removing uh, plaque from tissues and so forth. Well, there's another kind, which I haven't talked about a lot, but it's from, it's the particle from the food you eat, chylomicrons. That's almost exclusively only energy delivery. That's it. So they're just the food truck. VLDLs coming into LDLs, they're the only life cycle that includes both, both an energy delivery And then only after they complete the job of the energy delivery, then a support role. They're They're transformers. Yeah, you you could say that. (laughs) (laughs) So they deliver the energy, then they go on patrol. And guess guess how long it takes them to deliver the energy? Just just guess by how much time. I'm I'm going to go with 37.5 seconds. (laughs) <laughs> not not quite that fast, no, but uh, <laughs> a, uh, about 30 minutes to an hour. Okay. And then they'll spend about a half an hour maybe being an IDL. And then they'll spend two to four days as an LDL particle. So only one to 2% of their total lifespan do they deliver energy and boom, they just, they do it immediately. They're just like, no, I'm off, dropped it off. Food truck, food truck job is done, and then they slap on the, the emergency vehicle top, right? And then they start patrolling the neighborhoods. They're, what, why are they doing this? Because they're part of the immunological role. If they need to help to clear pathogens, they're part of that. They're part of the reparative role. If cells need cholesterol, if they're not able to synthesize enough of their own cholesterol, they can, they can pull it out of the bloodstream. LDL particles are going by. They have specific receptors to grab them, right? So... How does this come back to remnant cholesterol? Well, remnant cholesterol is when you find cholesterol just in VLDLs and you don't count cholesterol found in LDLs, what they ultimately trans, trans, uh, transform into, right? Why is this important? Well, guess what happens when you're highly insulin resistant? You have a very difficult time delivering energy to cells. Right. Yes. And that is why you often see high glucose going along with high triglycerides. Both of them are energy and both of them aren't finding any parking. Right. Oh, that, that is amazing information. I love that because I love the analogies that you're, you're coming up with because I think it helps people take such a complicated subject and they can drive up to a Walmart parking lot and go, this is like my energy receptors. And, you know, I mean, you can start really visualizing this process in your body. So that's, yeah. And that's exactly right. If you go to a Walmart parking lot, 
and you really have to get into that store, what do you do? You just keep patrolling the parking lot. And guess what? Other guys are patrolling the parking lot, competing with you for the same loose spot that finally opens up, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's where the key to this whole problem is. That's where you start seeing a large number of VLDLs in the blood because they are not succeeding at their first job. They can't get the food truck part done, right? Right. When you're highly insulin resistant and your, your cells are not uptaking those triglycerides, then they're going to remain in the blood because that was your body's job was to deliver that to your cells. And since there's more VLDLs in the blood, there's both more triglycerides and there's more remnant cholesterol, the cholesterol found in VLDLs and IDLs showing that they're not completing their life cycle as planned. Right. Right. And that's why remnant cholesterol, the easy way people can calculate it is they can take their existing total cholesterol and subtract from that both their LDL cholesterol and their HDL cholesterol. That remainder will be remnant cholesterol. That'll be the cholesterol not found in LDL or in HDL. Uh, many people like myself, I, when I first started out, I thought total cholesterol just was HDL plus LDL, but there, but it isn't. There should be a little margin left over. And that little margin, if you're in a really good shape, is usually in the single digits to the teens. If you're not necessarily in as good a shape, it's going to be into the 30s and above that. It's, it's really problematic. It means that you have a lot of VLDLs and almost certainly you'll see a lot of triglycerides in your blood panel as well. High triglycerides correlate with all-cause mortality. You can, a lot of statins will take your LDL cholesterol down, but they won't, they won't do anything for your triglycerides. Your, your triglycerides being high means you're not getting around your insulin resistance and you're probably hyperinsulinemic. You're probably, you may not die of cardiovascular disease. You'll die of other things that hyperinsulinemia can bring about. So, and that sounds dangerous taking a drug that's going to lower your LDL, but not affect your triglycerides. It's throwing your body out of balance. Yeah. And this is something I kind of have a strong opinion on. If anybody is listening and they're like, you know what? And I get some people who are like this, Dave, I just want to lower my LDL. I don't care about anything else. I go, my opinion, my non-medical opinion, (laughs) but it is somewhat evidence-based, is start swapping out fat for carbs if all you care about is lowering your LDL cholesterol. But I would rather become a raw food vegan than to take a statin, me personally, because why would I want to be powered by fat want to mobilize more of these VLDLs that ultimately come LDLs, and then likewise take a chemical compound that's specifically obstructing that primary means of energy supply. Why would I do that? It doesn't make any sense. But like you said, people, uh, they'll want to do it. We, we talk to people uh, all the time that will say, you know, I'd rather just take this pill so I can eat ice cream. That's what I want to do. Yeah, this is, this is what, uh, such a... I really get kind of passionate about this because unfortunately it's a kind of cultural mindset that I feel is new to humanity. I feel like through most of humanity, the concept of having a daily pharmaceutical solution from your perspective, that it's a solution to bad dietary choices is new 
I don't think that's how it used to be. I don't think there's anybody who was like, man, I can't wait until the future when I can eat very poorly. It can wreck my health, but I can feel comforted that some pill would change some numbers on a sheet to make me feel better about these choices. Because the bottom line is, at the end of the day, I don't care what anyone says, I care about something called all-cause mortality, which is just do you live longer or don't you? And in that sense, you know, there's a lot of things that can be played with and made to look better than it actually is when you're not looking at all-cause mortality. For example, if you bring LDL cholesterol very, very low to like 40, 50 milligrams per deciliter, like this, you know, recent trial that they had, no question, you'll lower your cardiovascular disease, right? Your risk of dying by cardiovascular disease will go lower. But this is why I constantly bring up this example. The fact that you die less of one particular thing doesn't mean it's that you're going to die less, period. So <laughs> my joking example is the cyanide diet, right? If I promise you guys, if you went on the cyanide diet right now, I promise you, you'll reduce your risk of dying by cardiovascular disease by 99%, 99.999%. By the way, it has other benefits. Your chance of dying of Alzheimer's disease goes down by 99.999. Your chance of dying by infection goes down by 99.999. Oh, but if we looked at all-cause mortality, we'd find the intervention group died inside of one day, right? right. So dying of something else is not the same as dying less. Well, I, I make the same, um, you know, analogy with sugar. You know, sugar, I tell people sugar is a poison. They're like, oh, it's, it can't be a poison. And I'm like, listen, you eat a little bit of it every day. And every day, that little bit of it will start to kill you. It's like eating rat poison. If you take in just a little bit of rat poison, you know, every day, it's not going to kill you, but it's going to make you sick. And that's what sugar does. You take in enough every day just to slowly make yourself sick over time. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's, it's something you got to be mindful of. Fructose, uh, I don't know how much you guys follow um, uh, Fet the Fetkies, but they talk about fructose a lot. In fact, I think his uh, Twitter name is Fructose No. Yeah, <laughs> As in no I fructose. Yeah, absolutely. So the remnant cholesterol that we've been talking about here today, people can figure that out, like you said, by taking their total cholesterol, subtracting the HDL and that LDL, and it's calculated LDL, Correct. and then see what that number is. Now, if they get a number that is above that teen range that you talked about, what would their protocol maybe need to be now I think we would all say maybe they need to cut sugar and carbs from their diet and maybe start looking at whole foods but is there something that that you have as advice in your work that you would tell someone hey this is probably the road you need to start on yeah so I do have it's kind of been sort of a succession almost a, a checklist if you will that I kind of go through with my own family and friends who I've worked with on this if your remnant cholesterol is high, it's probably because your triglycerides are high. They track very closely together. If your triglycerides are high, it's probably high. And I'm, I'm just going to go in order of my own anecdotal observation. The most likely reason is that you have what I would call leaks. You have carbs that you don't realize you're having on top of a very high fat diet. So I can't emphasize this enough. The problem that can occur with people going on keto is if they're not very mindful of their diet, they become super, super, super comfortable with eating fat that they weren't comfortable with before. 
And then after being very militant for a little while, the honeymoon phase is kind of off. Ah, and then they cheat like a little bit here and there and they add back in some amount of carbs, right? Not right. thinking that's that big of a deal. How often do you hear, well, I don't really track that much anymore, but I'm pretty much keto, right? <laughs> I'm totally, I don't track it, but I'm keto. Yeah, I get that basically almost every day. And so the, so the very first thing I require for somebody to get help from me, even my own family members, I say, as of right now, you have to start tracking all of your food. Like, I can't help you at all. I cannot, if I can't get a complete picture, right? And, and I, I, this is not hyperbole. 50% of the time, after I've required them to do that, inside of a week to two weeks at the most, they start coming back to me before I've even had a chance to look at it. Going, <laughs> well, it turned out that the salsa I was having had a bit more carbs than I thought. Um, yeah. This one just happened uh, just recently. Oh, it turned out that the mashed potato cauliflower that I bought that was prepackaged um, had carbs in it. Um, another common one is, uh, and this one also happened like last week as well, is um, one of my friends was getting their pizza, but they were getting the pre-shredded cheese and sure enough, pre-shredded cheese has to have that extra treatment to keep mm -hmm. it from clumping and the extra treatment adds a carb. So they, now they have to do what I do, which is you have to just shred your own cheese. It's a pain in the butt, but you save yourself on those carbs, right? Yeah, oh, that, oh, the horror of shredding your own cheese. Right. <laughs> that cellulose, they toss it in to keep it from sticking together so that it's easier for the consumer to purchase it and spread it, you know, sprinkle it on stuff. So you don't think about as a person on keto that you really, if you're going to up your fat to where it's that 75% of your diet is fat, you really have to be conscious of where those added carbs might be hiding. Yes. That's really good advice because I know a lot of people will be like, and I've gotten this one. I'm going to eat Halo Top because it's low, you know, it, it's high protein and it's low carb. And I'm like, yeah, but the Halo Top has a lot of sugar in it, really, for a keto person. You know, maybe, you know, for one special occasion, it's okay, but... You can't have <laughs> it every night. When you're doing that every day and you're having all the fat, too... This right. is this is going to be problematic with someone's blood work and with their not just their numbers, but we're looking at health. You know what's happening to their overall health when you when like you said you have all that fat fat and then you top it with those carbs, even if it's just a little bit, it could start really adding up. Absolutely, I I really cannot emphasize enough that this becomes even more relevant the further down the road of metabolic derangement you already are at and trying to work your way back from. So if you, okay. this is like the second time in a podcast that we have had the term metabolically deranged or metabolic derangement. <laughs> I absolutely love this term because I was a metabolic, I was metabolically deranged. I was. So I, I embrace that. Yeah. That's a good one. I like it's a it. Good, it's a good term. Keep using it. Well, and you really, I mean, not to sound like an engineer, you should think of your car making funny noises right? And you may not know exactly where those noises are coming from, but you know when it's making less of them. It's making less and less of them, right? Well, I'm, I'll be the first to say that I have, you know, some friends who do cheat, they'll have a cheap meal, they'll have a cheap day, something along those lines, and they'll come to me, and they'll be like, does this like wreck everything? And I'll say, no, it doesn't wreck everything. But I'll say this much. I'll say that while I haven't done a lot of experiments on this, 
I observe my own personal metabolic data more than any single person I know. It's really ridiculous at this point. Um, and I actually have a lot of blood work that leads me to believe that while it's true, we metabolically adapt very quickly. If we're metabolically flexible, how metabolically flexible we are has to do with how much we've healed that derangement. But then on top of that, beyond being metabolically flexible, if you do get a lot of your diet worked out and it does seem to be very consistent on the macros, the body seems to get more and more efficient at that particular delta, at that particular combination. So those people who lament that they're eating a lot of the same food, if you're okay with eating a lot of the same food, but you're actually being nutritionally complete, uh, I have a lot of reason to believe that your body gets better and better and more efficient at utilizing it from an energy standpoint, especially, and also things like circadian rhythm starts to balance out and a whole bunch of other stuff. That's why I think a lot of people who go on like the carnivore diet, particularly if they're eating a lot of the same foods um, in, a, in a succession. I do worry a little bit about the nutritional completion completeness of it. Right. But that aside, uh, I think when they do, it's why we see a lot of these, um, very rapid levels of, uh, healing back things that were like chronic disease that they've been dealing with for their whole life is in a way, it's not just a metabolic, it's not just a multiple removal diet, which is, it's kind of useful for, but on top of that, you're now kind of tuning your engine to not have to constantly react to massive changes and the nature of the foods that you're eating, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we have done the carnivore diet ourselves, and we're probably on working on, we're at month four, and I haven't had a vegetable in about four months. So, wow. yeah, it's been really interesting. And we, have, we did our blood work 30 days out, after starting. So now we'll have to do it again because now what we've done, we're experimenting a little bit and we've upped our protein and lowered our fat just a little bit. Now I expect to see some really interesting uh, blood work come back if we go check that after what you've talked about, about lowering fat. I'll expect to see a higher level of LDL probably. <laughs> well, well, last time we had our cholesterol pulled, my LDL particles were 3,500. And I think they're supposed to be below a thousand. Yeah, that's the yeah. I'm opinionated on that, but I'll I'll leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, all those standards are based on carbohydrate, you know, consuming individuals. So what you're doing is that and optimism. I'm sorry, yeah. they're they're not based on they're not based on a human uh, population average. Like a lot of these, just nicely clean round numbers where they go, oh, a thousand, a thousand is what you should have. A lot of these, what you should have will come out of, and I kid you not, will come out of things like a meeting of a bunch of cardiologists who then go, oh, well, because a lot of us agree on this, this will now move its way into the guidelines and not uncoincidentally ends up with a whole lot more medication being prescribed. Uh, that's what happened with LDL originally being the target of 130 and now being at 100, and now they want to move it down to 70. Um, oh, wow. I have again, not heard that. And again, this is not based on, oh, here's what the average population is. This is based on, um, you know, we've done a lot of, well, I, that's a rabbit hole. I, I kind of don't want to go down. I'll just, I'll say that in a way, I try to keep my research based on the lipids and less on the pharmaceutical side um, because 
the pharmaceutical side, unfortunately, just infuriates me as an engineer because a lot of the, the process by which they come to decisions are not uh, uh, wholly concrete based in data. It's not like if I, if I were to go and challenge them right now and say, look, can, can I just get the data on the last you know, 10 statin trials so that I can actually observe what it is? They would go, oh, that's all proprietary. We'll show you the graphs of what we ended up with after we've done a number of different, you know, Cox proportional modeling and a whole bunch of other things where it's, and I'm like, okay, well, you, you, if you felt the data was strong enough, you'd make it available to us because then it would stand on its own. There would be, there'd be no holes to poke in this. Right. Right. Um, and I'm used to that in the world of technology and technology, Google's dying to give you data constantly. It wants to give you what it's, you know, the biggest search terms are. It's uh, all sorts of uh, technology is open source to us, right? Open source means you can examine every line of code of it. And we get suspicious whenever somebody's trying to hide information from us uh, or clearly making something opaque and then pressing, pushing it upon us anyway. Um, so anyway, I just, I realize it's just kind of a difference of cultures, but it's one I get a little bit frustrated about. And that's, that's, you know, a big motivation to why I'm trying to just get a lot of this data myself. Yeah. So now you have kind of switched your gears and you're doing something completely different right now with your experimentation on your cholesterol. You're doing the gaining weight. Yes. On carbs, mostly uh, bread. Uh, I would, I would say it was mixed. So, yeah. So uh, I should qualify, one can be on a low-fat, high-carb diet, and I think, I think you can still be metabolically healthy. For example, I have some uh, vegan friends that have good-looking labs. I just think it's harder. Um, I think it's harder to keep at the uh, nutritional completion, and you have to eat a lot more in total quantity of food. You have to typically eat over the course of the day a lot more than you do if you're fat adapted. Um, but the, I knew in advance what the, what the exact diet would be that would gain me weight the fastest. And that is a hypercaloric mixed diet where I have both fat and carbs. And the reason for that is because I was intentionally creating a hyperinsulinemic state. That's why I was emphasizing everywhere I could. I don't want anybody to copy me on this diet. I know a lot of people get inspired by my experiments and do it, but this one does have, and I'll just be very upfront, both low, uh, short and long-term risks to it um, because it's, first of all, it's just generally not good to gain weight quickly. But usually if you're gaining weight quickly, it's because you had to induce higher levels of insulin in a standing, in a, um, in a standing position in your blood. That's, that's hyperinsulinemia. There's no other way, right? Right. <laughs> you, need, you need insulin as the anabolic hormone to remain in a constant um, uh, state of constantly putting away energy that you keep giving to it. Uh, and so, yes, I gained, I tried to gain between 205 and 210 pounds. Um, the mixed diet phase ended uh, on Monday morning of this week, actually. And then I flipped over, flipped the switch over to the keto diet. And so the plan was to try to gain subcutaneous fat, the fat that you have all around your body. And I'm, I'm a little worried I've come a little short of that goal because I, I wanted to kind of gain more. 
I didn't get the gains of fat that I was looking for. <laughs> Your bulking right. phase didn't work out so much. Yeah. Uh, I definitely gained some, uh, some abdominal fat though. And, uh, we'll see how fast that does or does not go off. Um, but, uh, the plan was to flip back to the last best version of the keto diet that I had for which I had tests for so that I could do a one-to-one comparison. And so that's what I'm doing right now. I'm literally eating on a schedule. Uh, that's the exact same schedule that that one was eating the same food gram for gram. Um, and I'll be doing that all the way up until, uh, the low carb cruise when we leave for the low carb cruise, which is a week from this coming Sunday. So as of this recording, I have about, uh, I want to say 11, 12 days to do this. And part of the problem is I need to get, I need to get to where I've dropped off, um, enough of the glycogen stores to get back to what my keto zone is so that I have a, a true one-to-one comparison. Because if you do have a mixed diet and then suddenly flip over to a high fat diet, you can still have like high blood glucose. You could still have high triglycerides and so forth. Because again, you're, even though you've switched over to keto, you're adding, you're adding into a massive uh, energy surplus of fat, right? It's, I can never get this across enough. Just keep thinking of your body as an energy partitioning machine and that it's working its best to try to meet your, um, what you're giving it. Right. So, so I need a little bit of a washout phase basically. And then what I want to see is if I'm right, if I still have some subcutaneous fat, if my LDL, my relative LDL cholesterol will be lower. And that's my hypothesis. Well, we're, we're excited to see those results because we love when people, you know, you're making the sacrifice, you're doing these experiments so you can show exactly how it works. Very documented. You're an engineer. We think we need more engineers, especially in medicine. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so what, what did your normal day during this uh, mixed diet phase actually look like? Just like um, a normal meal. Well, I, so it kind of goes in two phases. The first phase for two weeks, I went with my wife to um, Australia and that was for a 10 year anniversary. And over that trip, I intentionally ate a mixed diet, but it was what I would call uncontrolled as in it wasn't planned. Uh, For that trip, I had a lot of croissants. I had a lot of, uh, they have these meat pies, which they sell at a place called Pie Face. Um, And I had a lot of sandwiches, Uh, but I tried to actually... I tried to intentionally keep it towards flour-based carbs. Um, and it was a little sad because I would have liked to do, you know, have done things like hot fudge sundaes and so forth. But this is, this is how the sciencey me gets in the way of the fun-loving participant me. <laughs> science science me is like, well, unfortunately, if we bring in more fructose, that can be its own confounder. It'd be ideal if I could just gain weight on one type of carbohydrate the most and uh you know white flour really does the trick you can gain weight pretty easily on just uh yeah, white absolutely. Bread. yeah you just, can just add those buns to the burgers guys you can if you want to really ramp it up yeah. you want to bulk up <laughs> yeah exactly if you want if you want to bulk up your core i'll tell you <laughs> it's working great so then I so then I get back and I get on a controlled mixed diet and the controlled mixed diet I can tell you exactly what it was. It was a foot long Subway sandwich at 10 a.m., a medium pepperoni pizza for Marcos at uh, 
3 p.m. and then another foot-long Subway sandwich at 8 p.m. <laughs> you're, you're basically eating the diet of a young college student. <laughs> yeah, with, uh, without the uh, young college student metabolism. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I ate that for five days straight, five or six days straight. And uh, that was what I ate all the way up until Sunday. Oh, my God, I could not wait to be done. I, I can't emphasize enough as somebody who most of the time when people go off diet, they go into a mixed diet like, oh, it's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas, whatever. There's usually some event or stressor like, oh, the job's keeping me after hours. Oh, they ordered pizza, whatever. I'll just go and do a cheat thing now. They usually have something that's distracting them from watching the symptom changing. And I do have the benefit that other people typically don't have because it's not a stressor. I'm going on a plan. So I'm very mindful and I'm keeping constant notes as to what's going on with my GI stress, what's going on. I uh, I had a persistent cough that I get almost every time I bring in carbs and particularly if it's a mixed diet. Um, And I had headaches this time around that were, some of them were very persistent, very rough. Um, but the, the thing that really surprised me the most is that I could really detect what seemed to be a very chemically influenced mood change. It generally just was a little more, had a little more malaise. Um, it's just a little more depressing, just, just doing what I was doing. It's hard to determine for sure how much of that is psychosomatic because obviously I wasn't specifically enjoying, um, you know, the other things that I was experiencing. So I could have been reacting to these other symptoms, but I've had this before. One other time where I did a carb swap experiment before where my mood just very radically changed, like from, you know, if, uh, if I was, if super optimistic, happy was a 10 scale, I went from like an eight to a three in the span of 60 seconds. It was, it was super strange. I have a blog post on that somewhere. Yeah. And you know, that is something that we like to talk about because Steve being a veteran, we talk to a lot of people with PTSD, anxiety, depression, and diet matters. And when you're eating, yeah, when you're eating all those carbs, especially the white flour, what a lot of people may not understand is that that white flour actually, it will leach B vitamins out of your body. And what happens with B vitamins is that is what helps us to have those good, you know, moods. They are very, B12 is, it regulates mood, um, all these different things with B vitamins that go along with mood regulation kind of get dampened down by the consumption of uh, overconsumption of carbohydrates. So it is very, it will dysregulate your mood. And we find that a lot with people with B12 deficiency. They generally have some sort of mood disorder. And I found that very interesting that you experienced that because usually what I find with dealing with clients when they have some sort of mood disorder or anxiety or depression is that you find they have somewhere a B vitamin deficiency. And you can usually link that with the overconsumption of carbohydrates and sugar and poor digestion. That's pretty fascinating. Um, I, well, and I really should emphasize something else. If you're not getting enough fat, 
one thing that's not often understood is those same boats I'm talking about, the lipoproteins, they don't just carry triglycerides, which not a lot of people hear about anyway, and they don't just carry cholesterol, which everyone hears about. They also carry fat-soluble vitamins, mm -hmm. A, D, E, and K. They, these are themselves lipids, right? Yes. And they, because of that, they are hydrophobic, which is to say they don't mix well with water and your, your bloodstream is water-based. So it's the genius of the human body that it puts all of these guys that your cells need into the same boat. And then the cells themselves have these receptors that can basically ask for what they're wanting, right? It's kind of like a buffet. They can go over and reach out <laughs> into the buffet for what it is that they want. And this is why I... I've worked with a few vegans who've reached out to me um, that had high triglycerides. It's super, super low LDL. And in helping them figure out their triglycerides, part of it was we were swapping out carbs and adding in fat. And um, a couple of them didn't have their uh, cycle and their cycles returned. And that doesn't surprise me because this also brings back sex hormones. So they probably weren't trafficking enough cholesterol relative to what their body could synthesize. So your body will make cholesterol. But the thing that's never fully understood is how much each person needs exogenous cholesterol, cholesterol you know, brought in. And I don't know the answer to that any more than anybody else does. I just know that for some people, when they bring it really low, they have a problem with their sex hormones as though they're having a problem with that component of the cholesterol, given that once they add it back in, once they get more healthy fats, it seems to correct itself. Well, I think you make a good point is saying that, you know, you don't know how much that cholesterol intake has to be for that individual because we're all different. And we say this all the time. You cannot give one answer to everyone on what you should or should not eat or what is best for you to eat because you really have to analyze them in person, uh, you know, the environmental factors, the, the lifestyle factors, the, the, the previous diet of what they've been eating and how healthy they are and activity to see who they are and what would work best for them. Cause like you said, you know, people that are, that are vegans that have, have good numbers. And if they do, then great. Absolutely. Well, and for that matter, I, I should, while we're on this, I should emphasize that I don't subscribe to keto being the end all or be all. It very well could be that there are, there are people, and I haven't had any in my own family and friend circle, but there could be that there are people who just really don't tolerate fat well. My problem is making the assumption that you don't tolerate fat well because your LDL is high. That's what I feel like I keep reading over and over again is people who get high LDL, they must not be tolerating fat well because of that. And I think, I think you're actually trying to be exactly the opposite. In fact, I'm giving a presentation next month on lean mass hyperresponders specifically, and I'm, you know, free preview. I'm going to be making the case as to why it may in fact turn out to be a superior metabolic profile, that they may actually have lower rates of all cause mortality and that all of the signs are right there for it. But on top of that, that they may actually be taking on the lipid hypothesis unintentionally head on, because I don't think that they'll have high rates of cardiovascular disease, which is what would be predicted for having high levels of LDLC. Wow. That's yeah, really, that really is awesome. really interesting. And we really look forward to learning more about that from your presentation. Is that going to be, you said in a month. In KetoCon. KetoCon, awesome. So people that are going to KetoCon can hear you there and talk about that 
presentation that you're going to give there. That will be great. Um, I wish we could go to KetoCon. Hint, hint. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to go to everything. It is hard to go to everything. We'll be at Low Carb USA in San Diego. I'll see you there. Yeah. So we'll be there. Now, was that the news that you were talking to us about before we started? Because we chatted with Dave for a few moments before we started recording this podcast. And you talked a little bit about some breaking news. Yeah. So I'll I'll share with you guys one thing I haven't shared publicly yet, um, which is in the course of doing this, I also worked with um, DexaFit, I believe is what they're called. So shout out to DexaFit. They're helping me get uh, DEXA scans. So I'm actually scanning the um, acquisition of fat and lean mass, et cetera, uh, as I go through this experiment. And I, I kind of detailed that a little bit on the, the website. Well, the very first DEXA scan I got was three months before, sorry, three days before a second one. And it was just one week after I'd started the mixed diet. I got the scan and then ramped up the total amount of my mixed diet for the next three days and then got a second scan to have for a comparison to see what that would actually change and to also see just how much fat I could gain. Now, I should interject one real quick note. I'm trying not to get too many DEXA scans because I already have a lot of radiation exposure as it stands. I fly a lot for a lot of these... uh, uh, for a lot of these speaking engagements. But on top of that, I've already gotten a CAC once <laughs> and I've gotten a 644-slice uh, uh, CT scan in New York, um, wow. which is, and a lot of this is also just because it could literally make a 3D model of my heart and I'll be able to compare that again in like seven to 10 years. So that we'll actually see just what, if any, level of atherosclerosis I developed, you know, being primarily keto. Uh, but a CT scan is the equivalent of 200 chest x-rays. So I basically get <laughs> oh, man. a lot of millisieverts zapped into me for the purpose of the science. Uh, so I, I try, I try to, to be mindful of it. So I don't want to have a million DEXA scans either, if that makes sense. Anyway, yes. that just, just uh, getting back from that aside, something amazing happened coming into that second scan. So... I was curious how much fat I gained. It turned out that I gained a net of exactly one pound of fat. But I also gained a net of three pounds of lean muscle. Now, I know, that was exactly the look. It it should be noted to the listener that we're we're looking at each other right now, and they put on the same look that I did. So... uh, I should emphasize over those three days, I didn't suddenly hit the gym and do squats five, you know, five by fives or anything like that. Uh, I'm very careful to maintain a regular and consistent amount of exercise each day. I walk about two and a half miles roughly. And I try to keep that consistent so that all my data doesn't have exercise as a confounding point. In fact, that was one thing I complained about before we started this podcast. So the three pounds, I'm now fairly confident was glycogen. I had a hole to fill. And the exciting part is it was in my legs in particular. So the uh, analyst at first said, Hey, there seems to be a little bit of an offset between your two legs on the first scan. On the second scan, 
they were much more evened out, but had both gained quote unquote lean mass. But I don't think it actually was lean mass. I think it was a topping off of the glycogen stores in the legs in particular, not just in the arms and in the torso and a whole bunch of other places in the legs. That's so interesting. Super interesting. And totally freaky. Well, it, it makes sense. <laughs> if you're if you walk and you walk consistently, that's probably where you've created the most glycogen cells, I guess, if you will, or storage places in your legs. De- depletion. I would say it's probably I would say I probably have some amount that's spared, but relative to other limbs, I would assume that my legs would be the the highest candidate for regular use muscles as of right now. And therefore, it had a level of affinity for where it could have placed uh, the existing stored glucose as glycogen, right? Mm -hmm. Now, um, I don't know how well your listeners might know this, but glycogen actually weighs more. And like uh, from an energy standpoint, glycogen is actually very inefficient for weight. It's very efficient for use given the nature of how it's stored. So it's, it's definitely like your nitrous. It's usually ready to go. If it's in your muscles, it's the fastest means by which you can get energy. But it's actually, it's actually a poor form of storage because it's, I think for each gram of uh, glycogen, there has to be two grams of water uh, uh, because of the, I'm going to miss my biochem uh, talking points here. So I'm not going to say it, but I'm just going to say that it ultimately weighs more gram for gram for energy condensation than fat does. But fat takes more work to ultimately package up to reduce and ultimately to get into the, the droplets into your fat stores and so forth. Right. So it makes sense if I was already fat adapted and my body was already trying to do glucose sparing that ultimately it would end up trying to then place more and more into glycogen stores until that was getting topped off. And then probably I became much more carb centric. And guess what? The other thing we were studying, my RMR, resting metabolic rate, sure enough, by this very last test showed that I was burning almost exclusively carbs. Wow. Uh, Wow. So, yeah. The fact that you can test all that and track it is really cool. Yeah. And, you know, that's that whole thing where we talk to people all the time who will say you can't build muscle without carbs. Well, they're getting that glycogen storage. So they might feel, you know, pumped and they get that pump. They get that because it's very full feeling in the muscles, but it's not actually we try to explain that. Carbs don't really build muscle. They they give you glycogen to store in muscle. So what you're saying is exactly that. You had that ability to store it, and you it looks like increased muscle mass. Yeah, well, I'll go a step further. Fat in particular helps to build muscle because guess what? You need, you need actual – you need mass. You don't need just energy. You actually need yeah. the, the amino acids, and you need the uh, uh, cholesterol in particular uh, is bo- – I already did a blog post on this, but with my endurance running during the periods of time where I was the most sore, I had the largest gap against my inversion pattern, meaning that relative to what I already had charted and would expect to be in my LDLP and LDLC, it was much lower than that. And I'm confident that the reason for that was because my muscle tissue was endocytosing more LDL particles for repair. Uh, and I, and I want to do more isolated tests on that when I get into the resistance training portion of my research, but that 
short version is without question, if I want to be working out a lot and building a lot of strength, I want to be eating a lot of fat. That's for sure. Because I, I, I definitely want to be circulating a lot more of those uh, particles. Oh, let me also fit in one more thing too. And this is probably the most exciting thing to me maybe is the widest spectrum blood tests I've ever gotten. I've gotten for this experiment because I knew this was a once in a lifetime thing, or at least I don't intend to do this. Thing again. <laughs> Just uh, yeah. Even like that again. So before I started fully, I got, uh, it's a total of 20 different tests. And some of these tests are mini tests and side tests, like conference metabolic panel, but I'm getting all the lipids. I'm getting, uh, APO A1 and B I'm getting IGF one and GGT and LPPLA two in the thyroid panels. And, insulin and even glucagon, which by the way, is the most expensive test that's in this. They have to actually put in a frozen uh, vial container uh, to ship off to the lab just right. Wow. Oh, um, wow. But to have the glucagon insulin index as I've gone up in weight and then back down in weight is just going to be, I just, I can't say as a geek enough that I'm just crazy excited about the data that I'll be collecting from this experiment, regardless of how annoying it's been to perform. <laughs> oh yeah. Cause that glucagon and insulin ratio, that's a, that's a good topic right now because it's, it's something that's very interesting in the keto world because we've been worried about blood glucose, but we also need to look at the insulin uh, as it's being spiked in our body versus the glucagon. So that, that will be really interesting that you have some data on that. I didn't know they had to freeze it. And like yeah. Sit away. yeah, and it's I have to go through a little more work than most people when I'm getting the blood drawn because I kind of have to check their checking of the vials. So wow. they'll they'll run it down, get all the vials, and then I kind of have my own little cheat sheet where I have to check it against them to make sure that they didn't make a mistake and miss one vial that you know, for example, could contain the NMR that would like wreck me. Yeah, because that would be a massive fumble in the experiment that's already happened to me one other time where oh. there was a vital final test and they just made mistakes at the lab and they and that one was a lot tougher because they actually rewrote the lab in some ways and then ended up not collecting some blood that they were supposed to um but wow but that's the thing in order to do these experiments you kind of really have to keep your eye on the ball the whole way through and there's, there's just no getting around it. It's, it takes a lot of attention. Yeah, it's definitely, you definitely have to be an engin engineer to get all this stuff done for sure. I, I can't imagine keeping up with all of that. I know that that's a lot of work and this whole community really appreciates the time and effort <laughs> you take to do all of this. And it, it, that is, that's a lot of work. This is like, is this what you do now though? Is this what Dave Feldman does? Yeah, oh, it definitely is. Like I... For, for a period of time, I fantasized that I could probably be doing this kind of as a part-time thing and then just sort of do contract work with development. But the truth is, this is kind of overtaken all. I, in many ways, um, I joke about this. I sometimes feel like the protagonist in a dystopian future where <laughs> like everybody in this dystopian future is like, no, this thing our body creates inside itself is killing us. And I'm going, actually... <laughs> actually, wait, I got these formulas and these, you know, this data. And then, you know, I'm, I'm on top of it, trying to collect it. And the more that I feel like I'm awakening people from the matrix, the happier I get. 
So yeah, it has been like a matrix because we've been so afraid of cholesterol for so long. And then you find out, Hey, people with higher cholesterol literally live longer and mortality. Yeah. And you're like, when you start putting it together, you're like, how are really smart people? I mean, I'm sorry to say this, but so dumb that we have to have cholesterol to make sex hormones and to, you know, be the protecting layer around our cells, but we don't want to have that in our body. It doesn't make any sense. So I understand that feeling. Yeah. We definitely have one off the tracks when it comes to that, for sure. So we want to be respectful of, respectful of your time and make sure we don't drag this out too long for you. Cause we know you got other commitments. Um, where can people find you on uh, social media? Well, certainly there's my blog, cholesterolcode.com, but I'm also very active on Twitter, Dave Keto, K-E-T-O, of course. And uh, if there's anything I really want to be sure I leave your listeners with, and I really try to always drop this off, is regardless of where you stand, even to what degree you may believe or not believe in the low-carb diet, I certainly encourage everybody to at least start to come to understand how dynamic this system is. That evidence is overwhelming. Like, at a minimum, there's a whole lot that you and your doctor probably understand that's just frankly not true. It's, it's the, the lipid system is very dynamic and rightly so in order to properly power your body. But this becomes very relevant as to how you see cholesterol as well. Absolutely. And the fact that we know from your testing that it changes from day to day and even from probably hour to hour because of what you were talking about with the 30-minute transformer cholesterol, (laughs) then we're looking at a situation where you get that test. You don't need to freak out. You just need to see what is going on in your body and understand maybe what dietary changes you need to make for the betterment of your health and whatever that might look like for someone, whether it's keto, paleo, just whole food. We just say eat real food, you know, first and foremost, eat real food. It's true. So we, we really appreciate you taking the time with us today and especially letting us know some of the new things that are going on and we'll be sure and point people to your website. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Everybody go eat fat and prosper. Thanks for listening to the Tasco Kitchen. Hit subscribe and leave us a review. Don't forget to send your questions to Questions at gmail.com and visit our website, thetacticalkitchen.com.